I just want to talk to you about two things we need to do if we want to reach the next generation. Uh, and before we go to the Bible, we're going to be looking in Deuteronomy today. I actually want to read you a quote. I'm calling it an ancient Twitter post because it sounds like something you'd read on Twitter today, but it's not from 2019. So listen to this. I see no hope for the future of our people if they're dependent on frivolous youth of today. For certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. When I was young, we were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders, but the present youth are exceedingly disrespectful and impatient of restraint. That sounds like something you'd read on Twitter today. Somebody complaining about millennials or, or Generation Zers, or I don't even know all the labels. I don't even know where I fall in that whole time spectrum. But that was actually from a guy named Hesiod. He was a, a Greek poet from the 8th century BC who said that. It kind of tells you one generation complaining about another generation is nothing new. It's not anything new. It's been going on for about 3,000 years. In the 8th century BC, just to give you a little context, that's about the time that King Hezekiah was ruling in Judah, the guy you read about in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles in your Old Testament. This Greek poet was alive during that time and uh, making these same complaints and gripes about youth that we hear being made today. That You can't rely on him. And then the worst part is he's not even aware of his own blind spots because that one little statement he makes, when I was young, yeah, when you were young, you were messed up just like they were. <laughs> Don't deny it. They're probably being taught the same things you were taught and just like you, they're not doing it, you know? The forms of problems might change, and the form of questions might change, but ultimately, the problem with every generation is sin. It might manifest itself in one form in one era of time and manifest in a different form in another era, but it's always the same problem. The problem with human beings, the problem with society is always going to be sin. You can put whatever label on it you want, but it's always more fundamental than what you see playing out on the surface. Now, the good thing about that is because it's always the same problem in every era, it's always the same solution, God's truth. God's truth that has carried one generation into the next is going to be what carries the future of the church onward into however many generations remain until Jesus finally returns, and prayerfully it's as few as possible. And when one generation is critical of another, whether it's boomers talking about millennials or talking about Gen I don't even know if we skipped X, Y, and just jumped to Z or what, but I don't know. But when you start making these statements like, when I was young, like, hang on, you did not see the world with 2020 vision when you were young. Okay, you see with 2020 now because you're looking back and you can see where you took the wrong turn and everything. But if, if we always impose shame upon the questions of our youth and of our young adults and we make them feel like they should already know better. And very often we do that in the church. It's like, you're a Christian. You shouldn't be asking that question. Well, why not? Unfortunately, we're not the only sets of hands that are trying to shape their thinking and their value system. They go to school. They go to work. And there's lots of, they, they go to a neighbor's house. And there's all kinds of other hands that want to mold their thinking into something that's ungodly. And if we never provide an atmosphere of openness where things can be brought to the table and discussed, we can end up losing rather than retaining our young people because they are the future. They are the future. You know, I, I was, this is kind of embarrassing, I was 21 years old when I started teaching at Summit. I knew, yeah, that's right. Brother up here said, wow. I knew nothing about life at all. But the, my leadership saw something 
and this 21-year-old punk kid, you know, fresh out of Bible school. Uh, I did a year, half a year here in this city, just leading a team of evangelism uh, around the, the different boroughs. And I did half a year in Nigeria doing missions work and praying for witch doctors and Muslims and people with incurable diseases. It was a great learning experience, you know. Then I came back and they were like, hey, do you want to teach some classes? I had no degree. I had nothing but my summit education and I had virtually no life experience. But somebody saw something in me. Rather than looking down on me because of my youth and rather than looking down on me because of the potential for failure that was there because I lacked so much training and experience, they gave me a shot. And here I am 12 years later. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God, I'm not just teaching, but I, I've been able to walk in greater trust. I'm now the, the dean of our academic program. I love what I do. I get to see people changed every single year. I get to show people how and why they should fall head over heels in love with Jesus. And that what more could you possibly want to do with your life? And, but it's because someone chose not to despise my youthfulness. Someone chose to see something in me, and that's ultimately what we want to do. I don't want to have a Hesiod mentality, you know, these, this 8th century B.C. Greek poet just continuing that long line of complaint and griping about how my generation is superior to the one coming after me. Look, I work with young adults, and sometimes, yeah, they're crazy. I'm like, why are you thinking like that? But... You can't show that when they're trusting you with their questions. I mean, if they're choosing to bring their questions to us, how sacred is that? Like, that's a holy moment. They're looking at you like, can you help me make sense of this? They've been bombarded with all kinds of messages and thinking that, that's completely unbiblical, completely ungodly. And they turn to us as leaders for guidance and help. And if we treat that in a, in a shame-inducing kind of way... We end up kind of stifling them and pushing out the door and we end up throwing away the trust that they want to give to us. And as old as the concerns about the next generation might be, sometimes those concerns are legitimate. A 2017 survey taken by LifeWay Research estimated that 66% of American young adults between the ages of 18 and 22, 66% drop out of church for a year or more. They hit 18, and 66% are more than likely going to leave. 66%. Here are the top five reasons. 34% of adult young adults surveyed said, I moved to college and stopped attending church. 32% said, church members seemed judgmental or hypocritical. 29% said, I didn't feel connected to people in my church. 25% said, I disagreed with the church's stance on political or social issues. And 24% said, my work responsibilities prevented me from attending. 66% of our 18 to 22-year-olds more than likely could end up walking out the door and not coming back for a year or ever. That is a very concerning thought. That's very concerning. That terrifies me. How do we respond to these things? And not just with working with young adults and working with young people, but even in my study of the word, looking at the stuff going on in the news, the questions that they're asking, as are young people today, I see two basic needs that we've got to meet as leaders, as parents, whatever the case might be. If we want to reach and retain them, if we want to give them the strength to walk their journey with Christ, there are two needs we have to meet. Both of them are found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So I'd like you to go there with me. We're just going to read verses 4 through 9, and then we'll unpack what those needs are and how we meet them. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
I will not be surprised if all of us have heard this verse at least once uh, during our Christian journey. It's sometimes called the Shema, hear, O Israel. It's the great command of the Bible. And in this passage, we're going to find the two needs that we've got to meet in every generation that comes after us. If you're raised up in leadership, if you're a parent, if you're a teacher, there are two needs you've got to meet if you want to give them the strength to walk their journey. Deuteronomy 6, starting at verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The first thing that you and I need to do if we're gonna give the next generation of believers the power to walk with God is we need to give them a solid biblical worldview. We've got to give them a solid biblical worldview. What I mean by that is we've got to teach them to think about stuff like Christians. The way that they determine right and wrong when it comes to politics, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to everyday decision-making, how they handle their money and finances, it has to be according to scripture. But that doesn't happen by itself. That takes instruction. If you went through the New Testament, you counted how many times we're commanded to grow in the knowledge of God, you would need both your hands to do that. And growing in the knowledge of God is not just a relational sense, it's also an intellectual command. When you read verse 4, and it says, hear, O Israel, that's a command. Listen up. Pay attention. Pay attention with the intention of not only understanding, but obeying. And what are you supposed to listen to? You're to listen to this, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What does that mean? It's pointing to the fact that God is unique. There's nobody like him. There's no one that you can compare him to. And then you get to verse five, and it says, as a response to who God is, as a response to what he's done, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the thing we have to understand is that in verse five, when it says, you shall love the Lord your God, that's not a call to obedience. Okay? Hebrew grammar has a funny way of operating. It's actually really neat. And it's pretty amazing the way the Holy Spirit inspired it to be used. But you shall love is not a call to obedience. It's a call to willingness. There are certain words that you'll use to convey a command, a rule that you're setting for people to follow. That's in verse 4. Hear, O Israel. Listen. Obey. But when in verse 5, Moses says, you shall love the Lord your God. He is not calling for obedience to, the, to a rule. He's calling for an act of the will. Because you can obey something without liking it. You can be obedient and be completely disconnected from what you're doing. I'm doing this because I have to. There's a begrudging kind of obedience. And, and this passage forbids that. Like God does not want you to begrudgingly love him. He wants you to willingly, in response to who he is, love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. The only appropriate response to the reality of God's uniqueness is to love him with your whole being. Now, why do I say this? How does this tie in with giving people a biblical worldview? Well, the first thing you love God with is your heart. And you know, the ancient Hebrews had no word for brain. 
They had no concept for it. It wasn't part of their vocabulary. So when they spoke of the heart, they didn't speak of it the way that we do. We often have this divorce between the head and the heart. You've got head knowledge and heart knowledge. The Israelites had no such thing. There was no gap there. Your heart is not only the seat of your emotions, it's also the seat of your thinking, your logic, your rationalization, and it's also the seat of your will. So when God tells the Israelites through Moses, love me with all of your heart, he's not just calling them to love him emotionally, to develop their emotional relationship with him. He's also saying, I want you to develop the way you think. Do you think according to my word? Do you think according to my truth? And are you training yourself to do that in a daily way? It's a comprehensive term. They had no word for brain. They didn't distinguish between the head and the heart. If you knew something in your heart, it meant you really understood it. And it affected every part of your being. And that's what knowing God is meant to do. I tell my students this their senior year when they have theology class. I tell them the same thing every September when we kick it off. I say, listen, if you get to the end of this year and you pass all of your tests, and you remember all the terminology, and you can write out all the concepts we're going to be looking over, but you are not more worshipful and more in love with Jesus, one of us has failed. Somebody has not done their job, and I'm going to make sure it's not me. You don't want to just remember this stuff and know it in a, in a vacant, disconnected sense. You want to understand it in a way that changes the way you feel about God. Loving him with all of the heart is a comprehensive term. And what that means for us is that it's not enough. It's not enough for us to just tell our young people what they need to believe. We need to help them understand why. Why do we believe that? Why does God say this is right and that is wrong? Why, why can you only believe in Jesus to go to heaven? Why, why, why will good people who are part of other religions be doomed to eternity without Christ if they don't, if they don't come to him? That, that's so exclusive. And, and the cultural narratives start coming in. But look, these questions that they're asking are being motivated by something. They're not just asking because they're defiant. Our young people ask these questions because they're thinking of their best friend. They're thinking of family members. They're thinking maybe of themselves. You know, why is it wrong for someone to to be in love with a person of the same sex? If, If that's what they feel, isn't that who they truly are? Because that's what's being blown at them every single day. And if we just got, well, you should know better. You're a Christian. Sometimes we have to help people develop their heart of love for God. It's like, look, we need to train the heart. Because sometimes we think, oh, you know, the intellect, we don't really need that. We've got the Holy Spirit. Listen, the Holy Spirit is just as interested in teaching you to think like a Christian as he is in teaching you to love like a Christian. He does not want those things separated or compartmentalized. Because think about it. The, The number four reason for why so many young adults are leaving the church is because 25% don't agree with the church on social or political issues, which are inherently moral in many cases. They're inherently moral. They don't agree. Now, whether or not they should is a whole other matter. But in a lot of cases, what's happening is they're not finding a place where they can safely bring their questions up and be heard. If you bring your question up and get shut down or shamed, you're not going to do it again. But if you bring your question up and you're listened to, you're heard, and you're dialogued with like a civilized human being, they're going to want to come back to you again. You might up having to tell them, look, that is wrong. That's not what the Bible says. That's actually ungodly, but I'm going to tell you why. You walk somebody through something like that, you're going to win them. They're going to be like, okay, I can trust you. 
Even if they don't quite see it 100% yet, even if they're not quite sure what to do with what you're telling them, they're at least going to be, okay, this person respects me. They're not looking at me, just some dumb kid who's, who's got defiant questions, like they actually care about what I want to know. You're going to win people that way, but if we just have a, a he-seed mindset, well, when I was young, we knew better in our generation, and, and they're not going to come to you for anything. Listen to this quote from a Christianity Today article. And it's about this LifeWay research uh, survey that was taken. It was actually a follow-up. LifeWay did a survey in 2007 that yielded a set of results. And then they repeated it in 2017, and it yielded different results. The follow-up survey came in the wake of the 2016 elections with partisan divides over President Donald Trump's victory, adding to Generation Z's growing concerns around race, social justice, and LGBT rights. Ben Trueblood, director of student ministry for LifeWay Christian Resources, says, in the past, it was possible for difficult issues like these to be brushed aside or to go unaddressed entirely. But that approach cripples the purpose of student ministry. Now, student ministry leaders are forced to teach what the Bible says on these issues, as well as equip teenagers to respond biblically. We're going to have to learn to open the table to discussion. It's a scary thing. Because one of the things you learn when you listen to people's questions, folks, and this I'm saying from 12 years of experience, when you listen to other people's questions, you find out how little you know. And you find out how little you've thought through certain things you've had an opinion on. You get challenged on your opinion, you will find out if it's half-baked or not. But in a way, we need that. If you're going to take up the post of pastor, teacher, or leader in the church of Jesus Christ, you want to make sure that if you're dispensing something, You've really thought about it from both sides of the lines. I get questions posed in the classroom where in my heart, I'm like, oh God, we've got a long way to go. (laughs) Who? But you can't show that on your, you put on your teacher face like, well, you know, that's a very fair question. I see where you're coming from. (laughs) And now I'm going to biblically dismantle the unsound reasoning behind where that question's coming from. And look, but you do that in a way that shows, because I love them. I love my students. And I respect them. I respect them. They're, they're out of school. They're out of crazy weird school. We take their phones. We take their laptops. We don't let them date. Amen. Praise God is right. It's a good fast. You know, and they come there by choice. These are, this is, it's a hundred young men and women from all around the world who are like, I'll give that stuff up to see Christ. I don't care what questions they ask. It's like, if you will come here because you're that devoted to Jesus, I'll walk you through whatever you need to. And there might be points we've got to take the walk together because I'm still figuring it out, but let's do it. Let's do it together. I'm excited even next Sunday, actually, Pastor David Hamm is going to be joining us at the school for a, uh, we call it theology night. We'll just pick a topic and we'll let the students have an open forum. We'll have a panel of faculty or guest speakers. It's going to be Pastor Dave, Pastor William Carroll, and Pastor Tim Williams on a, on a panel. We're going to talk about racial reconciliation. How do we do that in the church? What are things we need to talk about? What's not being heard? What's not being addressed? And how do we build real unity where walls are brought down and it's not just silence because sometimes unity, where we, we can't mistake silence and unity are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. But if we are too afraid to open the can of worms, we can end up letting things decay silently under the rug. And that's not life. That's not the abundant life that Jesus has called us to. And, you know, we have to be willing to go there. It's going to take courage. And above all, it's going to take the wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. 
It's going to take that above everything else. But look, if people knowing that this is a safe place to ask their most honest, raw questions and that they'll get heard, they might not always get the best answer they've ever heard, but they know they will be listened to, then I'll go there. I'll go there with them if it'll make them feel valued. Their questions are not just about, you. I, just, I think this is the way it should be. Very often they're asking about people they know, people they love. And so we have to be willing to go there. We've got to give them a solid biblical worldview. The second thing that we've got to give our young people, and this is, gonna, this is a really deep one. It comes back to it every time, I think. We've got to give them a solid family life. We've got to give them a solid family life. When you read Deuteronomy 6, look at verse 7. He gives this command, love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. 34% of the young adults surveyed dropped out of church because they moved to college or left home. That was the number one reason why, that is the number one reason why young adults don't go to church anymore. They move to college. But this is why that's bad. Again, this is Ben Trueblood, the director of student ministry at Lifeway. He says, what the research tells us may be even more concerning for Protestant churches. There was nothing about the church experience or faith foundation of those teenagers that caused them to seek out a connection to a local church once they entered a new phase of life. The time they spent with activity in church was simply replaced by something else. So the number one reason why our young adults in America are dropping out of church is because they're not being shown why they need to stay plugged in. That's not on them, folks. That's on us. What are we communicating? How are, where are we not communicating to them that you need Jesus Christ? You cannot live apart from him or apart from his church. And when you look in Deuteronomy 6, it's not just that truly loving God involves the development of a worldview, loving him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, but truly loving God involves the development of a strong family unit. You shall teach them to your children, and you shall teach there. It's a really intense word in Hebrew. It, it refers to an action that produces a state. If, if I tell you I drive a car, okay, I, I perform an action. I do something. I drive a car. But if I tell you I drive the car or I put the car in drive, I'm doing something that directly affects something else. I'm changing the state of the vehicle. I'm, I'm taking it from being turned off and powerless to being full of life, engine rev revving, ready to move forward. And so when the command comes in, you shall teach them to your children. It's not just like spout off a bunch of information and don't worry about who hears it. It's like, no, you need to take your kids' hearts and etch God's truth into it. Repeat it to them over and over again. Son, daughter, I love you and I want you to live a full life in Jesus. Remember, this is who he is. Because ultimately, that's, that's what they're meant to be taught is love the Lord your God. And so the question becomes, when we talk about Jesus to our young people, when we talk about Jesus to our kids, what are we communicating? Who is Jesus? Is Jesus a system to be obeyed? Is Jesus a pattern of behavior? Is Jesus a set of beliefs? Or is Jesus the best friend that they will ever have and they've got to latch on to with everything in them? What are we communicating when we teach and when we talk about our Lord? Because if we're only communicating the first ones, if the only thing we ever do is communicate God as this big person giving a list of do's and don'ts and rules and you've got to think this way and you've got to think that way, 
I don't want my son to grow up thinking that, oh, dad follows God, just that's his calling and it's cool, but you know, I want him to own Jesus as his Lord and his Savior. And I have to model passionate commitment to him. I want him to understand that dad follows Jesus because no one has ever loved me like he has. I follow Jesus and I tell people about him because the God who had the right to judge me, the God who had the right to destroy me for my sin, chose to adopt me instead and took me from being enemy to being son. I follow Jesus because when I've been in crisis and I've been ready to throw in the towel, he's given perfect peace that surpasses understanding in a way that no other person could ever give me. I don't want him to just know that he must follow Jesus. I want him to have his own why. I want him to form his own reason. I want him to have his own list of these. This is every reason why I will not follow anybody else. You know, if you weren't here for the message this morning, you've got to go back and listen to it. But the, the, the truly converted heart, beloved, the truly converted heart is a heart that's willing to follow Jesus even into suffering. It's the heart that's willing to follow Jesus, even if it means becoming unpopular or being uncool. And look, you better know why if you want to walk like that. If you only see Jesus as an oppressive religious force that, that your parents foisted on you as a kid, you're going to abandon him first chance you get. But if you understand who he really is, if you understand his beauty, his mercy, his goodness, his love, his uniqueness, You'll follow him wherever. And that's what I want to communicate and pass on to the next generation. That's what I want to give my boy at home. That's what I want to give my students. That's what I want to give my congregation. And sometimes it will involve talking about the technicalities and saying, look, yeah, I know the world is saying this. This is what God says. And here's why God says this. And that puts, that puts an element of responsibility on those of us that are in leadership and teaching positions. If anyone out here today or listening is, is part of that, we need to know what we're talking about. You know, Ravi Zacharias once said, you've got to have a master's degree in philosophy to be a good Buddhist. Well, the good thing about Christianity is you don't need any kind of formal training to be a good Christian. You don't. You need the power of the Holy Spirit above all else. And the moment you get born again... He comes to you and he begins his work and he takes us deeper into his power as we go throughout our Christian life. But part of that empowerment involves a growth in our understanding, our understanding of who God is. And not everybody in this room, not everybody in the church is called to be an apologist or a, a great order. That's not at all what we're suggesting. But do we, do we know why? You know what you worship and you know what you follow, but do you know why? Are, are you able to communicate that in some way? And then when it comes to our, our family setting, what are we communicating? Is, is Jesus a system or a pattern or a set of beliefs or, or is he a best friend? Are we modeling passion to our kids and to our young people? Do we listen to our kids' questions honestly? Like are we, are we willing to say, you know what, I'm not sure. Let's, let's look something up that could help us out find an answer to that. You know, imagine. Imagine if we actually did that and, and turn more to conversation than just responses. We might actually get somewhere. I want to give you one more bit of information from some of the articles I was reading and gathering. This is again from a, this is from a focus on the family article. It said, Kid, kids raised in faithful, believing, practicing homes, even imperfectly so, are highly likely to retain the faith of their parents. 
Pew Research reports that only 11%, again, going back to the LifeWay Research poll, only 11% of young adults who left the faith said they had a strong faith as a child. The other 89% reported no real faith. In other words, our kids don't retain what they never really had. So when you look at that scary number, 66% of American young adults dropping out of church, there's another statistic underneath of that, and it's this. Of that big number, that 66%, only 11% of those kids were given a sound Christian faith when they were children. So the, 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 most of them that didn't leave the faith, it's because of the way they were brought up. What we instill in our children is so vital. And look, some people, they come to Christ later in life. Some people don't have a good family life. They don't have a whole or sound family unit. And look, that's where the church steps in to be the church again. We need more mentorship programs. We need older Christian men discipling younger men and showing them how to do this thing called life. We need godly women who are taking younger women under their wing and, and helping them navigate all the questions that rise up. We need, we need to fill in the gap. We need to be willing to fill in the gap. God give us the wisdom to, to love him wholeheartedly, to think biblically, and to lead our families and our young people passionately, because nothing else is going to do. Two basic needs. By the strength of God, we're going to meet them. We need to give a Christian worldview to our young people. We need to think, teach them to think in a biblical manner, and we need to give them as much as possible a strong family life. Whether they can have that in their living room or they find it in the sanctuary, they need to get it somewhere. Amen? Amen. Amen. Praise God. So uh, we're so excited for this moment. Uh, my name is Taina. If you guys don't know me, I've been on staff here for five years. I've been volunteering for eight years, and I've been coming here for 11 years. So really excited to be here with Pastor Nick and shoot some questions at him. Okay. So um, feel free to keep the questions coming. And the mm -hmm. first one is, what is the remedy for church dropout? remedy for church dropout? Well, I'll gladly rehash everything I just said, but in a, in a, in a more soundbite-ish kind of way. Now, I really, I can't see a stronger solution or remedy than the things we just highlighted, that we need to give people a biblical worldview. Because, okay, they go off to college. That's the number one reason, right? And when you go to college, I mean, our, our universities are not in the best state of affairs right now. They're hit with competing worldviews, different ways of seeing life, different ways of thinking, completely unbiblical systems of, of values and right and wrong. And if they haven't been adequately prepared for that, and by adequately prepared, I don't mean they've been given every possible response they'll ever need to give, but just, hey, you're going to be hit with this and with that. And look, if you ever hear something, you don't know how to respond to it, call us, we'll pray, we'll talk, we'll, we'll study it out together. If we don't adequately prepare them with their own biblical worldview, they can flounder. And so that's why I emphasize that point first. And then secondly, the family life, I think is so, so fundamental. We've got to have strong homes. We need dads uh, stepping up to be the pastors of their living rooms, uh, moms giving all of the protectiveness and nurture that they can. Amen. Yeah. Um, here's a question that's pretty hot topic among young people in, in just conversations that I've had with people, um, if they can bring it up. How do we approach friends who may be homosexual? Ah, well... You don't stop being their friend, first of all. Right, yeah. uh, they, they remain your friend. You know, when Paul told the Corinthians about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers, he had to clarify what he meant there. And he said, you know, I never told you to stop associating with sinners. And he, he specifically uses the example of fornication. He says, I never meant stop so associating with fornicators. Then you would need to just leave the world. But if anyone claims to be a Christian 
Like they're identifying as a follower of Christ and they're living a lifestyle completely contradictory to Christian values. You can't validate their claim to faith by having close friendship with them and close fellowship. You know, so that's what he was driving at. So if you have a person in your life, a good friend who is in any kind of deviant lifestyle, because, you know, that's not the only sin that we're facing today in society. It's emphasized a lot because people are really, you know, very strong opinions about it. Um, But you don't stop being their friend. You love them as much as possible. Use the trust that you have as friends to talk about it. Well, you know, hey, when did you, when did you come to this conclusion about yourself? You know, do you know what the Bible says? Like God made you beautiful the way you were before and whatever caused the confusion, you, you can be healed from that. And, you know, be gentle, be kind, be loving, but just you, you can't compromise. So it's a, it's a tightrope. It's a tightrope. Okay, next question, if we could bring that up. How do you define mentoring and how can we fulfill that call nowadays? Hmm. I think there are people who could give a much better answer to this than I can because mentorship is not something I've done a lot of, unfortunately, and it's not something I've, I've received a lot of. But when I, when I think of mentorship in churches where I've seen it acted out, it's basically discipleship where you've got volunteers in the church who are saying, I've got time and I know Jesus and I want to give that to somebody. And they pair up with young people who are maybe in some kind of disadvantaged state, you know, whether they don't have a parent at home who can do that for them, uh, you know, they don't have the best background, they don't have consistent safety and love, and they just meet up with them once a week. Let's play basketball, and then we'll go sit and talk about, about life and talk about Jesus. And it can be a means of evangelism or just a means of spiritual growth. So what does that actually look like? Does that mean look, doing life together? Does that mean... Yeah, like your small group slogan, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It looks just like Times Square Church's small group okay. slogan, do life together, you know? So I, actually, small groups is a great way, even in this church context, that's an excellent opportunity for mentorship. You connect with people and, you know, you find someone, wow, you, they've got a spiritual maturity about them. Uh, they, they know some things that I don't. That's a great opportunity to build those relationships and learn. Praise God. Okay, here's another question. Can you be a Christian while not going to church? What if you read your word and stay at home and stream sometimes? Mm. (laughs) Uh, Can you be a Christian and not go to church? Well, okay, let me deal with mainly that first half of the question. Let's... uh, If you are truly a born-again Christian, there should be a craving to be with the body of Christ. I think that's the best way to put it, you know? People but, who, but the body of Christ, they're so difficult. They are. I work with them every day. They're very difficult. And I'm part of it. And I know there's a lot of people saying that about me, that I'm very difficult, you know? I, I don't remember who it was, but somebody said, refusing to go to church because of the hypocrites uh, is like refusing to bl- uh, breathe oxygen because of pollutants. You know, it, it's the same thing, really. And there will always be people, it's like Pastor Carter said this morning, there's always going to be folks who rub you the wrong way. Uh, and you can either choose to let that sharpen you or just let it make your own character flaws worse. You know, it's up to, the Holy Spirit is in us to help us make that decision. So people's flaws are a bad reason to stay away from church. And uh, I also heard uh, someone, uh, Pastor Tim Delita, say, actually, you could be a, ch- a Christian not going to church, but you won't be a growing Christian, right? I think that's growth, an excellent way church, of putting it. Church, growth, That's right? an excellent way of putting okay. it. Okay, here's what we got. There's a lot, 82, 82 people are texting in. Okay, awesome. let's see what else we got. Hmm. We still love you if we don't get, you, get to your question, <laughs> just so you know. Would you recommend therapy for Christians? In some senses, yes, I would. Uh, I, I would. I do think that therapy needs to be viewed by the church as another form of preaching. 
Mm. Um, what do you mean by that? And it depends on how you approach it. Well, Tim Keller actually wrote an excellent book. It's called Preaching. Uh, you know, <laughs> and I, I had to read it for seminary. It was really, really good. And he brought out how preaching should be operating on multiple levels. You have the most fundamental and the most authoritative is the declaration from the pulpit where the ordained shepherd is telling the flock, this is the direction we need to be going. Uh, you have that prophetic voice coming from the, the pulpit and saying, this is what's happening in the church. This is how God wants us to respond to the life that we're living in this hour. But then it, it begins to go down. You have the sharing of the word in a small group setting. Mm. You have the sharing of the word in a one-on-one -on -one discipleship setting. Mm. And sometimes you will need a one-on-one -on -one setting where a person is dealing with an exceptional level of brokenness mm. and they need someone who has been trained and is also spirit-filled and well acquainted with the word of God to help walk them through those issues. And there's nothing shameful about needing that. I don't think that it should ever be a person's first course of action. But if you've, if you've prayed in faith, you've believed God, you, you don't have any known sin or rebellion in your life and nothing is working, then you know, take care of yourself. Do what's necessary to you know, have a sound life. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Okay, next step, if we could pull it up. Uh, what advice do you have for Christians interested in having meaningful, transparent, and edifying conversations about race? Uh, listen to the other person. <laughs> and obviously, <laughs> you know, talk, talk to a person who doesn't share your own uh, ethnic background. Uh, and quite frankly, I, that's actually what I needed to do. You know, I, I grew up with certain sets of assumptions as a Christian all my life. And uh, very often, you know, I'll, be, I'll be a bit raw, you know, they, they mask themselves behind economics. You know, like, well, it's not a race issue, it's a, it's a welfare issue or it's a projects issue. And, you know, you have certain labels you put on people based on where they're coming from, uh, you know, where they're getting their income from, and you cast judgments based on that. And it actually took, God placed me, it was actually when I was, first working at Summit as a teacher, I started working in an inner, an inner city neighborhood in Harrisburg. Um, and a lot of that stuff got called out in my heart. You know, being called to love those kids and those teenagers and see uh, where they live, what they're going through. Uh, the Lord made it very clear that my assumptions and his gospel were contradictory. And it was a long journey to learn how to really listen to people. It was a long journey to learn how to drop what I had assumed to be true and right my whole life. Um, and listening is an art. And then there have been other times where people on the other side of the line have needed to learn to see things from my perspective. And unless we learn to have that charitable give and take as the Church of Jesus Christ, because this is what it comes down to, and then we can go to another, another question. God forbid that the church is divided on the same lines as the world is. God forbid that the church, that the opinions held by Christians are in the same camps as Republicans, Democrats, blacks, whites. We cannot afford to be divided that way. We've got to endeavor as much as possible to think biblically. Okay, this one, um, I'm having trouble starring it, so you don't need to pull it up, but someone is asking, how do I get my 15-year-old son to attend church without forcing him? Mm. Okay, well, it's tough to, it's definitely tough to contextualize a, a question like that, um, you know, because immediately, I've been asked questions like that mainly by, by single parents, you know, and I think that single parents, I didn't get to touch on this a lot, you've got time constraints when you're teaching, but, you know, single parents, you are not in any way um, disadvantaged by the fact that you can't offer your child a, a two-parent household. The Holy Spirit will fill in the gap where the partner is missing, um, and that's what Paul means, and 
you know, 1 Corinthians 7, when he talks about, you know, if you're in a mixed marriage, like one spouse is saved, the other is not, your children are still holy, meaning that there is still, they are not automatically damned uh, because of the unsanctified parent. They have a fighting chance just as much as anybody else does. Um, you know, so just going off of that with that question, I don't think it's at all wrong. I think it's actually sensible and good for the boy if he knows that if I'm staying with this parent, uh, there are some certain things I have to do. Uh, One time, a lady came and asked me, you know, my son just plays video games all day, all night. Uh, His father doesn't help any, and the father, they were separated. And, you know, she said, "I, I don't know what to do. And he screams at me if I try to turn it off. I said, well, you should probably sabotage the system and break it, uh, you know, and just tell him, look, if you want to have something like that in my house, get a job and, and buy it yourself. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And look, if you're in this house, you're going to go to church with me at least once a week, you know, and, and pulling rank. And obviously he can resist that. There could be a lot of further help that would be needed in a situation like that. But I think a good starting point is just saying, hey, you're here, you're in my home, you're going to church at least once a week. And that's the way it's got to be. Amen. Okay. Aren't you so glad that Pastor Nick is here? He's awesome. Okay. All right. So what, how about the next question we're putting up? What are some of the best ways to approach people from other faiths? Is it uh, in a practical or spiritual way? Um, It's a good question, but I actually, I wouldn't separate those two things you know, a practical or a spiritual way. And maybe what they mean by that is, should I just leap into talking about the gospel or do I want to build a relationship first? I think that's fair. Like building relationships is an excellent evangelism tool, but there really are no rules on, on how to do this. There's nothing wrong with having an initial conversation about faith, you know, but you have to be prepared for the fact that it might take building a relationship and building trust with that person before they're really ready to listen to you. Because in those initial conversations, uh, they're probably going to have their guard up. You know, they're ready to defend what they believe. But as you build a friendship, you're actually going to have a lot more ground uh, to advance on and get them closer to uh, salvation. Amen. That yeah. go back to what you were saying about trust. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Um, all right. So what else we have here? What is the effect of a family curse, and can that be a cause of why less young people come to church? Uh, Okay, I think Pastor David Wilkerson gave the best response that I've ever heard, and he didn't give it publicly. Um, He said it in a conversation, but someone else said it publicly, and that's how I know about it. But he, he was asked one time, what do you think of generational curses? And he said, look, sometimes I go back and forth on this. What I do certainly believe in are generational influences. And the reason why I think that's such a a profound answer is because I don't think it's wise for us to believe that Christians can be cursed. Uh, You know, so if you're talking about a Christian home or or at least a Christian young person, uh, and maybe there's a background of very deep-rooted and strong sin, or perhaps even a background of witchcraft, uh, you know, those things can't cling to the believer. You know, they can certainly try to influence and bring torment and that kind of thing. But Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. And, you know, the curse of the law is about the wrath of God separating you from him for eternity. There isn't any other curse you could talk about in life is inferior to that. So to say that Jesus could break the most powerful curse, but can't or doesn't always break lesser curses is just an illogical conclusion. Christians cannot be, curses cannot bind the believer. 
I, I would say. You know, so it, I think that if there's, a, if there's an ungodly influence, that will be very difficult. If you're in a home where there's hostility toward the gospel and you're being opposed for going to church, that's just a normal challenge that you're going to have to face. You don't have to worry about a curse. You've got to worry about the, the parent or the sibling that's just acting, playing the devil's role in your own home and saying, don't go there. And those people need prayer. They need to be uh, plugged in and, and discipled, you know, because they need strength. I need a lot of strength. Praise God. So I just want to say we have 539 texts in, and I think my, my iPad's about to explode. Um, so one of the questions that I saw earlier was, um, well, let me see here. How can we, oh, I bring my questions and my ideas to the church, but I keep getting shut down. Mm. I keep getting shut down. What, what do I do? Mm. I think, honestly, this is a question I've been asked a lot, uh, especially by some of our students at the school. And, and it's always for various reasons. You know, there's some kind of really uh, strong traditionalism or, or there's just a, a certain way of doing things. It could be a denominational issue. It could be a, 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 a cultural issue, anything. And what I tell them is, look, you've got to look at what are the reasons behind the thinking of your leaders. Uh, you know, like in, just to contextualize it, I've talked with some young people, their church has a background of persecution. And so you're talking about the leaders are part of a generation that they were imprisoned for the gospel. Uh, they suffered for the name of Jesus. And so they're very guarded against any kind of influence. And it's unfortunately given way to a commitment to tradition over and above truth, or at least alongside truth. And for you know young folks growing up in this country who have only known freedom, they've never had to face that. It can be very frustrating when you want to take things in a new, relevant direction, and you're just opposed on grounds that you don't understand. And I think that it's good to try asking, look, what, what are the reasons for this? I'm ready to listen. I just want you to explain to me, why do you feel this would be a dangerous thing? And be willing to obey, be actually content to come under authority, because the Holy Spirit's under no obligation to back you up if you don't walk under authority. Mm -hmm. No obligation whatsoever. And I, I challenge them to actually stay under authority. And I, I know a couple young men in certain situations like that, they're obeying their leaders, they're actually getting permission for stuff. They're accepting no when they're told no. But God is causing their ministry to thrive with their youth groups and their young adults groups. Amen. So I think the default should always be coming under authority. Amen, yeah. Amen to that. Um, uh, another uh, question that came in earlier, I think it was specifically about this church. Why do uh, high schoolers only meet once a month when they're the most at risk? What, are you, what, would, what suggestions would you give for that? Well, I'm not on that leadership team. Yeah. So, and I... Well, okay, obviously there's a questions resonating with people. Uh, you know, so I think I want to be careful because I know the high school leaders and they're godly people who love Christ with all of their hearts. And I think that, you know, if there are suggestions on, you know, something that would be beneficial to the high schoolers, then find those leaders and say, hey, can I pitch an idea to you and see what they say? And sometimes they're, they're doing what they're doing because there's other operations in the church where meeting more than once a, a was it once a month? Once a month. Yeah, more than once a month might cause conflict. But hey, this church is pro-discipleship and pro-spiritual growth. Um, I, I know that for a fact. And so if there are good ideas that will make way for more growth, then I'm quite sure that you'll get an open ear. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you, so how were you, how were, were you discipled? How were you discipled? Wait, I wish I'd been. <laughs> I had spurts of discipleship when I was a kid. I really was not. How are you defining that, just first of all? Mm. 
When I say spurts of discipleship, I mean times in my life when someone was actually taking me under their wing and guiding me, mm. like personally showing me this is how you do life. This is how you think like a Christian. I was brought up in a Christian home. Um, you know, I, I was taught to love Christ, you know, and it wasn't perfectly done, but I am who I am because of the upbringing my parents gave me. Uh, and I thank God for that. But as far as like really being taught the faith, that wasn't until I got to summit. You know, so in some ways I advocate for these things because I've known bankruptcy. Like I've known what it is to be without those things. And so I champion them because I know the difference it could have made earlier on in my life. I'll tell you a story. One time I, I, was, I was 16 years old and I was invited to a, a worship conference that a pastor in our church was doing. And, uh, you know, he asked me, hey, if you found yourself leading the, the worship song tonight. And I was like, oh God, no, I don't, I don't want it. It's not my ministry. But I was like, well, I, I hope I would be ready. If, if you asked me to do that. And he said, what do you mean? And I really didn't know what to say. I was so insecure. And I was like, well, did I, I think I've sinned a couple times today or this week. And, I, I, and he started talking to me about the Pharisees and legalism. And like, I was hearing him. I was like, something he's saying is right. And I need to know it. But he didn't really finish the thought. And he never continued the conversation. I was kind of left just with questions and confused. Like, what, what, what were you driving at? And then I get to summit, you know, two or three years later, and that's the first time I ever hear somebody tell me, God accepts you based on your faith in Christ, not based on your works. That was the first time I ever heard that in my Christianity. I was doing a paper for my Pauline Epistles class. I was writing a paper on Galatians 4, and I was getting set free because I, doing homework, getting set free because I never saw in the Bible, I'm justified by faith. It's amazing, you know? So it's like, that's why discipleship, taking people under your wing, talking, this is what Christian life is all about. Um, that, that is so vital and necessary. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask a question on behalf of people that I know. Why are okay. young people so lazy and selfish and non-committal? Um, I think that's a complicated question. First of all, I do think it's an unfair generalization mm, because not all young people are that way. Okay. You know, There are some who are, but there are some who aren't. I do think that, I think there's a lot of factors that go into the other part of the question. I think that in some sense, it's our abundance and our freedom as a nation and as a culture. Like so much is just given to us. We're the microwave generation. Things are instantaneous. You're not going to learn patience. You're not going to learn the importance of being willing to grind it out and, and earn the sense of reward at the end when that's how you spend your daily life. I mean, you can flip out your phone and Google whatever, binge watch stuff on YouTube, whatever your imagination conjures up, it's there. Um, so there is, you want things more instantaneously and that can produce apathy and that can produce a sense of laziness. And commitment, the commitment one, I think that feeds into it, but also I don't think they're always getting great models of commitment. And I think that is why uh, you don't see them following through on stuff. You know, if you grow up in a home where, you know, promises were negotiable, marriage vows were negotiable, uh, why in the world should you be committed to anything? Uh, you know, if you had people back out on you at critical times in your life, why are you going to be consistent uh, in being present for things? So I think it, there's going to be a lot of different aspects to that. So I don't think the question with no disrespect to the person or people asking it, I don't think it's a fair generalization because you're talking about a hundred different factors yeah. that would shape a person who winds up like that. Well yeah. said, thank you. Um, any famous last words before we... I hope they're not last last words. <laughs> um, yeah, love Jesus with all of your heart. I mean, honestly, that is the only thing that any generation of Christians has ever needed. If we can model and pass on a radical love for Christ that will move us to face anything for his namesake, the church has a bright future.
has a very bright future. Amen. Thank you so much. Amen. It was my Praise pleasure. Praise God. Thank you, family.